Brothers and sisters, we may open God's holy word in the New Testament. And this time we turn to the gospel according to John chapter 10. As well as to what the Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth, uh, at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 12. These serve as our background reading to our confession concerning the church, the communion of saints, and the forgiveness of our sins in Lord's Day 21. The first we'll read together in God's Word, John 10, the verses 1 through 18. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge. I have received from my Father. Let's turn ahead in our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. One Corinthians 12, we'll read verses 1 through 26. And after we've heard from this portion of God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 100, all four stanzas. Here the word of the Lord speaks to us as follows. Now 
Concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of service, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit. To another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. For just as the body is one, and as many members, and all the members of the body, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving a greater honor to that part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. This afternoon, I may proclaim to you the word of the Lord. <clears throat> as we've, as church summarized and confessed it in Lord's Day 21 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 535 of your book of praise. <clears throat> Lord's Day 21, where we confess 
What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? I believe that the Son of God, out of the whole human race, from the beginning of the world to its end, gathers, defends, and preserves for himself, by his Spirit and Word, in the unity of the true faith, a church chosen to everlasting life. And I believe that I am and shall forever shall remain a living member of it. What do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that believers, all and everyone, as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. Second, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily and cheerfully for the benefit and well-being of the other members. What do you believe concerning the forgiveness of sins? I believe that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never come into condemnation. After the proclamation of the gospel, we'll sing in response Psalm 65, stanzas 1 through 3, and we'll do so standing. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, why is there still today a need for the church? Do we really need to gather together week after week? Could we not just sit in front of our computer with an open Bible and locate a sermon on sermonaudio.com? Would that not be an adequate substitution for being here? It's true that if ever there were a time when appreciation for organized religion was at an all-time low, this may very well be the day. What has taken its place is a growing emphasis on spirituality. You don't need the church, you don't need organized religion in order to live a moral life. And so what has happened is that many believe that they will be okay with God because they've actually created a God one who doesn't demand too much. It's a God who doesn't require you to get up Sunday morning and get your family washed, dressed, fed, and ready to go in the vehicle for Sunday morning worship. It's a God who's not going to have you listen to a preacher tell you things you might not want to hear. It's acceptable then to have a negative view of organized religion. Christianity is a relationship, not a religion, it's said. This thinking, and especially this catchphrase, should bother us a lot. 
James 1, 26 and 27 say, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. True religion certainly is about much more than going through the motions. It is a religion of the heart, but it doesn't stop there. True religion doesn't stay within yourself or unto yourself. It shows itself outwardly in seeking to live a holy life, in serving others, in using your tongue, yes, in a godly way. And, yeah, even in the observance of rituals. God has given us today rituals just like he gave to the Old Testament saints. We have some new ones. Baptism, hope to see that next week. Lord's Supper. But we have old ones as well, among which are gathering together every week for corporate worship as the Church of Jesus Christ. This is a central religious ritual. Our religion, brothers and sisters, is not just about a personal relationship with God. 1 John 1 verse 3, John writes, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. True religion is about our relationship with God as well as with one another. If God's people are to cherish the covenant that he's made with us, then we are to cherish the church, the bride of Christ, where he gathers us together. I read somewhere this past week, put it very well, Christianity is not just a relationship, but a religion made up of relationships, beautiful relationships with our fellow believers based founded in a renewed relationship with God through his Son, Jesus Christ. So do we still need the church today? Absolutely. In the church, God gives to us what we can never get by ourselves. So I bring to you this word of the Lord. God, the Holy Spirit, works in the Church of Christ by gathering the flock of the shepherd, building the communion of the saints, and applying the forgiveness of the sinner to the sinner. So first, God the Spirit works alongside, along with Christ by gathering the flock of the shepherd. Question 54. What do you believe concerning the Holy Catholic Christian Church? It's a question not simply asking for the meaning of church. No, what do you believe, it says. It's a personal question, again, concerned with your faith and confession. The church is a matter of faith. No, not that you believe in the church, 
The Apostles' Creed purposely goes from I believe in God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to I believe a holy Catholic Christian church. We don't believe in the church because, of course, to believe in something or someone is to put all your trust in that thing or person. And if you're trusting in anyone or anything besides God, you're guilty of first commandment, idolatry. And so I believe the church. That means in faith, I believe the church is being gathered here in this place. I hope you realize then that your confession is a bold confession. In the Ancaster area, I gather there are roughly 19 churches. That's a good bit. And I'm guessing that many of you pass by at least one of those other churches to get here. In fact, I'm sure most of you, if not all of you, do, since one is just a stone's throw away. So what makes you gather here then? Well, yes, it is by faith. The temptation often arises to define the church based on what we see and not what God reveals in his word about what the church is really supposed to look like. But we confess that we believe a holy Catholic Christian church. And that confession of faith then has to be an echo of what the word of God alone reveals concerning the church, even if his word goes about what we see maybe in churches around us. So with this matter of faith at the forefront of our minds, that this is the church of Christ, we can start to look a little more closely at, what that, at the work that happens in the church. The Bible, of course, uses certain imagery to describe for us this wonderful project in which Christ is involved. We read some of that in John 10, the well-known passage describing our Lord as the Good Shepherd. Now, that's actually where our catechism gets some of its terminology in answer 54. You can really hear it. I believe that the Son of God out of the whole human race from the beginning of the world to its end gathers, defends, and preserves for himself by his spirit and word a church chosen to everlasting life. Catechism wants us to think in this way of Christ as the good shepherd. He carries out the work of gathering all whom the Lord has chosen. Well, that's election language. Election is not an emphasis in the catechism, but it's still there, here and there, here in Lord's Day 21. Election is primarily the, was the Father's work, So when the Son gathers for himself a church, he calls to himself only those whom the Father has chosen to eternal life. Christ is fully aware of the fact that only those come to him whom the Father has given to him. That's why in our reading, Christ so often speaks of his sheep. Verse 2, 3, and 4, he also says, My sheep, my own, 
Verse 14, I know my own, and my own know me. Later on in verse 27 and following, he says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Christ sees clearly the responsibility, the duty that his Father has assigned to him, given to him. The Father has given Christ ownership of us. We belong to him, our shepherd, our master. And he says, I give to my sheep eternal life. They are mine, forever mine, because no one can snatch them out of my hand or my Father's hand. And so Christ carries out the will of his Father. He gathers, he binds together all those chosen by the Father. He doesn't want the Father's chosen ones to live apart from each other as scattered sheep. He wants us to fit together in one sheep pen where he is the shepherd. He says in John 10, verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. His point is that there are chosen people outside the church who, for whatever reason, are separate from the gathering of true believers. So Christ has to continue his gathering work in order to complete the church. He does this by his spirit and word especially when it comes to the use of his word, his voice, his authority. Our reading from John 10 is very emphatic. There is an intimate relationship between shepherd and sheep, one of leading and of of obeying. Verse two and following, he who enters by the door is the shepherd of his sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, And he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. The great shepherd knows his sheep by name, intimately. And when he brings them out, he goes before them and his sheep follow in his path because they know it's him. They hear and they trust the voice of the good shepherd. Christ, for that matter, wants us to listen to his voice, to come to know his voice intimately, and chiefly to follow him, learn from him, hear. Congregation, Christ calls out of this world all those whom the Father has given him, that we may gather as one, in his sheep pen, where his voice and authority are proclaimed and also cherished. 
And so Christ gathers his church by his word, also by his spirit. The Holy Spirit causes us to hear and to understand that word. He does that through the preaching of the word, where we hear the very voice of the good shepherd. The spirit is the one who works with that word. He opens our ears and hearts to hear the care and the concern of our good shepherd who wants to defend and preserve us, his flock. The Holy Spirit testifies in our hearts that what we hear on Sunday is the voice as well as the love of the Good Shepherd. Beloved, the Holy Spirit is busy. He's working in the church right now. He inspired the Word of God. He draws and gathers us into his workshop, and he illumines our hearts today by the Word of God. He works at it in us. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 12, we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand what God has freely given us. Yes, the spirit is at great pains to make us understand and obey the gospel of grace. He wants to make us new. And he does that through the voice of the good shepherd, week after week. So, it is flagrant disobedience toward the good shepherd for a Christian to say, as long as I believe in Christ, I'm free to worship him where and when I feel comfortable, in church or otherwise. Christ clearly desires that his church be formed on earth as the assembly of believers. Yes, assembly, not society. Society, of course, is established by people. You join or you resign. You come and go as you please. Church is not a society or a social gathering or a friendship club. There is no choice in the matter. This is the sheep pen of Christ. Here he is. Here we consistently hear the true voice of our good shepherd who speaks to us in his word and sacraments. Here is where his authority is recognized and officially, faithfully exercised. This is where he defends and preserves the church against the wolves, against our three sworn enemies, devil, church, pardon me, devil, world, and our own flesh. So for anyone who claims to believe in Jesus Christ as the great shepherd of John 10, that means you follow him by the way he wants you to, where he wants you to. You cherish his great project of gathering and protecting his church here. Yes, if you believe in Christ, maybe I'm preaching to the choir here, you believe one holy Catholic Christian church that's here, the workshop of the Spirit by whom the church is gathered and built up. 
So we come to our second point this afternoon, that God the Spirit, as the agent of Christ, builds the communion of the saints. When we come to question and answer 55, we do not deal with a new subject, but a continuation of a, the subject of the church. It further describes what the church is all about. It's not a gathering of believers and unbelievers, but it's specifically set apart as a communion of saints, set apart people, holy ones. Here we get a glimpse of the intimate life of the church, of believers with their Lord and with each other. What do you understand, then, by the communion of saints? That's a very good question, and one that's often misunderstood. Some regard the communion of saints as the mutual love, the fellowship of believers among themselves, To say such a thing, that the communion of saints is the fellowship of believers with each other is really only half an answer. And as far as the catechism is concerned, it's not even the first part of the answer. The communion of saints is not only about mutual love. It's not that even in the first place. There's something that comes before it. What the catechism mentions first is the root, the fountain of communion. The root of it is this, first, that believers, all and everyone as members of Christ, have communion with him and share in all his treasures and gifts. And then the fruit is the second part, that everyone is duty-bound to use his gifts readily, cheerfully, for the benefit and well-being of the other members. Say it another way, communion of saints is first a bond that connects the believer to Christ, then a bond which connects believers to one another. It's through Christ and our union with him, our membership in his body, in his church, that we then enjoy communion with each other. It's through being here as an active follower of Christ that we may enjoy any kind of communion, real, meaningful communion with each other. We do that by making use of the treasures and gifts that Christ has given to us. You should notice in the footnote of answer, for the first part of answer 55, that the sources the catechism's authors used are mostly from the letters of the Apostle Paul. That shouldn't come as any surprise. Paul went from being a foremost persecutor of the fledgling church of Christ to one of the strongest defenders and advocates of that same church. His letters abound with matters pertaining to the church and to its life in Christ, its head. We saw that when we considered our reading in 1 Corinthians 12. There the apostle is speaking at length about the various gifts within the congregation at Corinth. He doesn't want the members of the body of Christ to be in competition with each other. 
No, you all have different kinds of gifts, but you have the same spirit living and working among you. He goes on to use the image of a body with its various parts or members, and he uses that image to speak about the body of Christ. Body, he says, is a unit, and even though its parts are many, they form one body. We're all in this together. We're all called to use our gifts as a body. Verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The church of Corinth shared in the same life-giving spirit. It's the spirit who works within the body, building the communion of saints together. The spirit gives to each his or her own function, just like a human body. Your hand has a different task than your foot, and your foot a different task than your ear. So it is in the body of Christ. Each has to use his gifts readily, cheerfully, for the benefit and well-being of the other members. There's a diversity in gifts. Gifts of the head, the heart, the hand. We cannot and we need not do all the same thing. One of us can comfort, encourage, the other teach, another organize, etc. Gifts from the spirit of life. And not all gifts and strengths are equally public, but that by no means makes them useless. Paul says in verse 22, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. No one here is without gifts from Christ, and so no one may remain idle, lazy in the church. Through the work of the Spirit, Christ gives gifts to his church in order to build her up. The Spirit drives the church, animates the church to live out of the treasures and gifts of Christ. These are in each and every member. And that ought to be the engine that drives our communion with each other, that we take stock of our gifts and not just talk about them, but actually use them for each other. Yes, it's a command, brothers and sisters. Believers have both rights as children of God, as well as obligations. We are duty-bound, the Catechism says. We accept the gifts of Christ by faith, and now we use them in faith. We work together for the benefit and the well-being of each other. That's what the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 7. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. You can't say to your neighbor in the pew, I don't really need you. I don't really like you. Promotes division, which has no place in the body of Christ. Christ. 
Again, that image of body is so helpful. If you break an arm or a leg, <clears throat> you do everything you can to make sure it gets better. You go to the doctor, get it properly set and casted. Well, that's how it should also be within the church among the members of the body of Christ, that the parts of the body we deem less honorable, we treat with greater honor. It would be wonderful if that would happen naturally as a fruit of the Spirit. But we're still sinners and so often selfish. You would think that it would be self-evident that we take care of our body, but we don't always. And that's why Scripture and our confession hold before us our calling in this life to serve the other members. We're all in the same boat, and we all need to serve each other. <clears throat> Those gifts that we receive from Christ are for the common good, Paul says. And so we work for each other, pray for each other, admonish one another, forgive each other, just as Christ does all this for us. That's our final point, applying the Spirit, applying the forgiveness of the sinner. Well, question 56 is certainly a fitting end to this Lord's Day. The Spirit applies to me, makes me share in the benefits of Christ, and one of the most beloved benefits is the forgiveness of the sinner. I believe, we confess, that God, because of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, nor my sinful nature, against which I have to struggle all my life, but will graciously grant me the righteousness of Christ, so that I may not enter ever come into condemnation. Well, here, of course, we're getting at the heart of the gospel. Christ's work of redemption is the basis for our forgiveness. If it were not for the cross, forgiveness of sins would be absolutely impossible. God is judge in heaven, and he has to administer justice from his throne. <clears throat> He cannot forgive unless his justice is satisfied. And so here we see that the forgiveness of sins is a miracle. The miracle of the cross, the wonder of it, the miracle of Christ. Took upon himself all my sins. He stood before God as if he himself were a sinner. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, God made Christ to be sin for us. Think about that. All our sins, past, present, future, were transferred to Christ, absorbed by Christ, and he before his God became nothing. But he became sin for us and paid for sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Christ's righteousness has become ours. 
between God and my sin stands the Lord Jesus. We read about Christ's sacrifice for us in John 10. I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Our good shepherd said that no less than four times in our reading. <clears throat> As our shepherd, he stood in the way of our sin, bringing harm upon himself. But by doing that, he's made it good again between God and us. He says in verse 17, <clears throat> verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. Christ was looking ahead to the cross, where he would satisfy God's justice and pay for our sins. And because of that, our Father has forgiven us. He loves his Son who laid down his life. And so he loves those whom he has given to his Son. Catechism says that God will no more remember my sins nor my sinful nature. Please understand that well. God forgives generously, radically. He forgives all my sins without exception to the point where he does not think of them anymore, hold them against me anymore. He's not going to come back to them. Our sins have disappeared as far as east is from the west. Beloved, we have to see our sins for what they really are and confess them by name in prayer. Not every time, but it's a good habit to consider, to get into. Why is that? Well, it's so that you and I can say to ourselves these words, neither my sins nor my sinful nature, not only my sins of today, but of my whole life, sins I've committed against God, against my parents, my siblings, my husband or wife, against my own body and my sinful nature. That makes it even worse in a sense. That makes my sin all the greater. Not only do I sin, but what is far worse, my very nature is sinful. So yes, when I think of all the sins committed in my whole life, and when I consider my very sinful nature itself, well, then it absolutely blows my mind that God would put up with me all this time. He spends time with me, seeks fellowship with me, loves me even though I'm sinful. God wants us to see our sins so that we might confess our sins and seek the forgiveness of the cross. And at the same time, he shows to us the magnitude of our sin so that we would stand amazed that each day again we receive another miracle that God will no longer remember my sin, that he cancels the debt, he removes it, that's enough to bring you to your knees in tears. All of my sins, past and future, my whole life reconciled, forgiven because of Christ. 
as God graciously grants me the, the righteousness of Christ that I may never come into condemnation. The Catechism rightly calls this act of God gracious. By forgiving our sins, God not only takes something away, all my sins, but he also grants me something at the same time, the righteousness of Christ. He looks upon me as if I had fulfilled all the obedience that Christ has fulfilled for me. As if my food were always to do the will of my Father. He grants this so that I may not enter into condemnation. Nevermore will he remember my sins, and nevermore will I be condemned. Brothers and sisters, <clears throat> the church is the dwelling place of the forgiven. This is where the Spirit confirms in your heart that if you believe in Christ, you are forgiven. At the cross, you hear about the cross in the preaching, and you see the cross in the sacraments. That's why you need to be here. For only here will you hear and see the gospel of salvation and all its riches. Only here will you be told and shown your sins are forgiven you. Go in peace. Jesus Christ speaks to you through his ambassadors that you have obtained favor with God because of the satisfaction of Christ, that his righteousness has become your righteousness. You're not going to get that assurance anywhere else. <clears throat> and so come and listen to the voice of the shepherd. Sit under his instruction and admonition with your brothers and sisters. He teaches you to confess your sins and to cling to his promise of forgiveness. Why would you want to be anywhere else? Amen.